Welcome to The Naked Truth, real talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric, and this episode is all about learning and teaching. As many of you know, either because you know me or you've listened to the show before, I'm very passionate about teaching, and I love learning about learning. After an episode we did way back when, in which we talked about teaching this dance, Chris Swearingen reached out to me to share his own thoughts on the subject. Knowing that he was a professional educator, I've been wanting to have him on the show to talk more about the subject. Now, as I note later in the episode, it it kind of blows my mind that there's a whole field of study around learning and teaching and education as a discipline, and I feel like we in the dance world don't seem to be tapping into that resource nearly as well as we could. So when I relaunched the show, Chris was one of the first people I reached out to to sit down and chat. Hopefully you all know who Chris is, or maybe you've seen his dancing. Chris lives in his hometown of Overland Park, Kansas, just outside Kansas City. He learned West Coast Swing as a senior in high school, and he's been hooked ever since. He went on to form a successful partnership with Rebecca Ludwig, competing in the Classic Division and finding success in All-Star and Champion Division Jack and Jill's and Strictly's. In recent years, he has partnered with Toro Eaker, competing, teaching, and performing at events around the country. Chris is also a middle school English teacher. He received a teaching degree from Emporia State University for teaching high school and middle school English, and, as you'll hear, he teaches virtual classes through Insight School of Kansas. This conversation took place over the winter holidays. We started by chatting about his education and training and his role as an English teacher. Then we got to talking about learning theories, how children and adults learn, and how he develops his students to be effective learners. We then talked about dance and how these theories apply to learning a physical activity. I also asked him what makes for a good teacher, what he'd like to see more of from teachers in our West Coast Swing community, and what his advice is to help people learn more effectively. As you'll hear, he's very thoughtful, he really knows his stuff, and I really enjoyed geeking out with him. So much so that the conversation ended up being much longer than I planned. I hope you all find it as interesting and educational as I did. Here now is my conversation with Chris Swearingen about learning and teaching. Chris, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm big fan, long-time listener, and happy to be here. <laughs> yes, and I know we've been meeting to uh, catch up and actually talk about some of the things we've talked about on the show, so I'm glad we finally have a chance to to meet up and share our conversation with our listeners. <laughs> Indeed. Um, how have you been? How have you been since the Open and the holidays? You know, the Open and this time of the year is always a fairly exhausting uh, period, you know, all the work that people put up going into the open. And then, you know, after the open's over and you finally get home and it's more or less straight to the holiday season mm-hmm. around this time, it's kind of like your body's said enough. And so I'm finally on the uphill swing and I've gotten myself some good rest and I'm doing finally doing a uh, good after everything been going through the open was a great experience it always is the open's always so inspirational and it's one of those things that regardless of what any result is you always leave the open with some sort of inspiration of one kind or another and so it's always fun to to ride the high of of that yeah did you debut your routine at the open no i've actually of all the opens i've ever competed at 
I only ever debuted once, and that was Toro in my first routine a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was mostly only because the timetable worked out for that. I prefer not to do that because, for me, the open is stressful enough as it is. I don't like to add the added stress of having to debut something brand new. Yeah. So when did you debut that routine this uh, for this year's? This year's routine was debuted at Mad Jam, so yeah. back in March. So you've had a few months of, of working on it and refining it. Exactly. Yeah, that was great. By the way, did you submit your routine for the Swing Content Review? We did. Ours came back at, I believe, like 79.5 or something like that. Yeah. So it, it, round, it got to be rounded up into the passing category. Excellent. Just curious since that came up a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but by day, you are a middle school English teacher. That's correct. And you work with students virtually. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. How many students are you working with and, and what are you teaching them? So I work for a school called the Insight School of Kansas. It is a Kansas um, branch of the larger corporation, which is known as K-12, which you may have seen commercials for and whatnot. Um, but yes, I teach eighth grade English and uh, I serve students across uh, the state of Kansas. So I think last count, I had roughly about 120 students that I was responsible for. The come in uh, periodically on different days. We do I do live sessions with them, uh, work with them just like a student would in any other you know, school, brick and mortar, as we call them, mm-hmm. uh, the physical schools. And, uh, you know, the, the they get the education just like they normally would, just from the comfort of their own homes. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of big differences between learning virtually and learning face-to-face. Uh, and there's a lot of things we do to kind of close those gaps, those differences, those disadvantages, and those advantages. Um, but yeah, I've been doing that for about five years now mm-hmm. uh, with this school, and it's been a really good experience. Yeah. How'd you get into teaching in the first place? What drew you to it? So that goes way back to when I was, I think, Mm 14-ish. I was working at a Boy Scout summer camp, and uh, that experience gave me a really, you know, smooth insight into the world of teaching, you know, as a camp counselor, teaching merit badges and different scouting activities. um, I find I had a really easy knack for that where I could go in, I could explain things to people that just made it click for them. And especially that gratification of when that moment happens, when they finally understand they get it or they improve. Um, that was something that I kind of understood. Oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. And so when I got into high school uh, around that same time, I had a couple teachers that really inspired me. Um, and uh, that led me to my avenue for wanting to be a teacher. Did you always want to work with middle school or teenage students? Actually, I I did not. It was one of the the few age groups I actually did not want to teach. I wanted to teach just high school specifically. Um, When I went to my uh, student teaching experience, uh, I had the opportunity to get a certification or get experience in both a middle school and a high school instead of just a high school. And I figured since the job market at the time wasn't great, I might as well get experience in both. And so I split the semester. My first semester, I had high school seniors. And then my second part of the semester, I had eighth graders. So quite a kind of difference in that. Um, and I actually found I love teaching the eighth graders way more than I enjoyed teaching the seniors, at least that particular semester. So 
yeah, originally I thought middle school would be too much of an awkward time period in people's life. And I just didn't want to deal with all that. Uh, <laughs> the hormones. <laughs> yeah. But after, after I got into it, I loved it. And uh, I, I taught a little bit of high school uh, before getting this job in the current position I'm in now. And now I'm back to, to eighth grade and I'm loving it. Why did you like eighth grade more than the high school students, at least in the, the groups you worked with? Um, I kind of found that middle school is, yeah, there, there, there's all this hormone stuff and, and weird, awkward parts of people's lives going on. But at the same time, developmentally, they're, they're not quite at the attitude point of their life. They're kind of just starting to develop that. So um, they're still somewhat, in general, a little bit more cooperative and a little bit more willing to listen in a sense, whereas high schoolers, not that high schoolers are awful or anything like that. Um, but, you know, in high school, you start to get a little bit more of that independence and that a little more, I guess, fiery resistance sometimes, sometimes from yeah. students. And uh, no, not that that's bad. I, I had great experiences when I was working in high schools, but for some reasons, middle schoolers, even though the, the content's not quite uh, the degree that that I really love working with. It's, it's a little easier to work with them in general. I, I feel like at least I know there are varying opinions among educators about that, but <laughs> sure. for me, for me, I found it easier to work with the middle schoolers. Yeah. That's really interesting. What kinds of uh, subjects do you teach them in the English class? So for my eighth graders this year, we've specifically mostly focusing on reading and writing. Um, they'll read the read this past semester diary of Anne Frank, um, we've worked on some uh, um, autobiographical work writing for themselves, obviously with Diary of Anne Frank. We did some narrative writing with them, so a little bit creative writing process. Um, next semester, we'll do Lord of the Flies, and we'll also do some argumentative writing so that they can work on. Because the big thing that I work with them a lot with my, in the writing experience especially is being able to back up their claims. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the hierarchies of Bloom's taxonomy, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, uh, just being able to defend a, a position or a stance you have legitimately. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of stuff that we're, especially next semester, I'll be working on with them is research and argumentative, persuasive type writing. Yeah. How much of the curriculum is set um, like by the state versus your school versus you? So a um, couple different directions coming in with this. So this, the first and foremost, the thing that we always have to make sure that we follow is the state standards. So the state sets at, at least in Kansas, I can only speak for Kansas is, mm -hmm. um, but Kansas sets a set of standards that, you know, at the end of eighth grade, a student should be able to do this. Uh, they should be able to write a paper that includes these things. They should be able to read things that are at this level. They should be able, able to identify, you know, characterization. They should be able to write dialogue. Um, so the state kind of steps in first, and that's the overarching thing which people have to follow. Teachers, ha educators have to follow. Um, so there's the state standards is the first one. Then from my school, from K-12, we have a curriculum that's kind of given to us uh, to follow, but we have pretty much complete control over that curriculum. We can cut stuff out. We can rearrange things. We can teach things in different order. Um, we have a, a pretty liberal uh, handle on that uh, curriculum, mostly just so that we can make sure to, it works with the state standards. As a matter of fact, for the next semester, I'm pretty much gutting all the writing assignments that they have in the curriculum and making up my own so that they fit 
the standards. Because especially coming from a national corporation, every state is a little bit different. And so sometimes that curriculum is written for other stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, students who enroll in K-12 or Insights, are they homeschooled? Like, why aren't they in a brick and mortar school in a traditional sense? So there's a lot of reasons that students come to my schools. First off, just for verbiage, um, the students that I work with aren't homeschooled. Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's always the the big question I get. The students that I work with me work from home, but aren't homeschooled. So when you're homeschooled, um, you're usually taught by your parents or a tutor or something like that. Um, But your guardians get a hold of the curriculum themselves, and it's their responsibility to get it taught to you in some form or fashion. What I do is the kids are working from home, but they're getting it from certified teachers. So it's a public school still, um, just online. So first off, just to kind of, you know, put that vocabulary in line. Um, Now, as far as why do students come to our school, they come to our school for a variety of reasons. Um, Some are kids whose parents wanted to homeschool them, but they didn't have the um, confidence or the knowledge or the ability to be able to give that information to them for whatever reason. And so they came to us so that professionals are actually teaching them. Um, We have kids who have had traumatic instances in their brick and mortar settings, such as really bad cases with bullying. Um, Maybe they have um, some sort of disorder or some sort of sickness uh, that doesn't quite operate well in a brick and mortar setting and a face-to-face setting with other kids. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, we also have students who are, so advanced that the brick and mortar setting actually slowed them down a little bit because the online setting is designed to be a little bit more student paced. Um, and uh, also a really cool uh, addition and benefit is we have some students who are pursuing professions and pursuing talents that require them to be doing stuff during the day or traveling a lot. For instance, we had this one girl who was traveling the uh, um amateur rodeo circuit. And so she was constantly traveling and that that was a lot easier for her. Um, We also had a kid one year who was apprenticing with the London ballet. So he was living in London and then getting his high school degree through us. So there's a myriad of of ways, obviously speaking out to a dance community. um, There's a number of dancers out there that have, you know, been homeschooled so that, you know, people coming up in the juniors ranks have been homeschooled so that they can pursue dancing and also we have, we have students just like that. They're pursuing some sort of talent um, that makes it hard for them to stay in one place for yeah, too long. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, so in order to become a teacher, I assume you had to go through some sort of certification. Mm-hmm. Um, are you certified by the state? Yes. Um, pretty much every educator in a, in a school setting is has a state certification and every state certification is a little bit different. So if I were to move somewhere else to teach, um, I'd have to, I might have to adjust my credentials to, to meet their standards. But yeah, uh, all teaching licenses are issued by individual states. And what have you learned about learning theories or how people learn um, that prepared you to, to be a teacher or an educator? So uh, the thing about how people learn is uh, it's kind of a minefield. Everybody learns a little bit differently, but also there's not a there's not too much of 100% uniqueness in how people learn. Um, 
there was a push when I first kind of was graduating high school and getting into college uh, about differentiating learning so much because every student learns differently, which is true. Um, but the the approach was a little bit more of a uh, trying to tailor make education to every single individual student, especially when you're in a group setting. If you're a tutoring, that's one thing. But if you're in a group setting, it's very hard to tailor make a single lesson being taught to a group of students for every single student if you've got like a classroom of 30 kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as um, I learned more and more about education or whatnot, um, the the popular, as I mentioned earlier, kind of theory in education is called Bloom's Taxonomy. Um, and basically, it's this idea of the processes in which kind of a stair-step model in which students learn an activity. It's kind of broken up into to three different ways. There's the knowledge base, there's the psychomotor, which is the more the um, learning skill, physical skills and whatnot. Um, and then also um, the effective. Um, and so the, this hierarchy, it's oftentimes people define it as like scaffolding, the idea that you have to set one layer and then build on top of it with that. And so in general, I'm going to kind of like simplify this quite a bit because Bloom's taxonomy actually gets pretty in depth. Um, but at the, the bottom level, there's remembering skills. Um, so this is simply recalling basic facts, calling um, simple things, recall. You read something and then you tell the person back what you read, what happened in the story. Um, after that, you have, on top of that, you have the understanding level, uh, which is where you clarify things. Like if you were to be asked a question about a story, to kind of clarify things, you'd be able to do that. It wouldn't just be a, who is this character? You'd be like, why did this character do this? And you go, like, oh, it could be they did it for this reason. Um, on top of the understanding level is the apply level, uh, which is using information in new situ- uh, new situations. So taking what you learned in this book or in this reading or in this experience and being presented a new experience and applying the kind of bridging the concepts over to the new experience. Um, Then we get up into the more kind of uh, stepping back and looking at the situation where we get to the analyzing level. uh, And that is where you draw connections among ideas. So you have two different situations. What's the connection between the two? Um, How can I understand one because of the other and back and forth? So it's not just a one-way street from one to the new situation. Um, That's Then we move up to the evaluation stage. Um, This is where you justify your decision. So this is kind of what I was talking about earlier about my students writing uh, the idea that it's not just, I, I try and tell my students, it's not enough just to say you have an opinion. You have to be able to defend it and you have to def- defend it logically. Mm-hmm. So this is where we have the evaluation part, the, the make a claim and they're able to defend it. They can say, this is this way because of this. And then finally, the top of the pyramid is cr- the create creation stage uh, where you, you produce original work. So it's not just analyzing someone else's work and how that works. It's taking your own original thoughts based off of everything else. Cause again, it's a pyramid um, and creating something new and original. Um, so that's kind of the, the biggest uh, most common practice that uh, an educator will face when working with students is that kind of stair step idea and it's it's not even one of the things where once you get to the top of the pyramid you're done it kind of actually starts all over or, or anytime you have a new subject or a new approach it kind of starts all over now 
you usually can move through the, the bottom levels a little bit faster the more you get with it. Um, but it's, it's a little bit more circular than just simply achieving the goal and stopping. So when you say that every student kind of has their own way of learning, but pretty much all students can be brought through this taxonomy, um, where does the differences lie? Is it in their ability to move through these different stages? Like some will be stronger than others. Is it that you need different tactics at each level to move them up that hierarchy? Where does the difference lie? That's actually more or less exactly what it is, is um, some students are going to excel at the ability to, or the race call stage. Some mm-hmm. students will just be able to give you facts, you know, left and right. You ask them, you know, when was the Treaty of Versailles signed? And they can tell you right then and there. Um, whereas when you get up higher and you they now have to analyze that and they have to come up with an opinion about it, um, they might struggle a little bit with that. A number of my eighth graders uh, kind of struggle with that. It's like they can tell me facts and, and statistics and everything all day. But as soon as I ask them to synthesize that into an original thought, then they have a little bit of trouble with that. Um, and vice versa. Some kids have nothing <laughs> nothing but opinions, um, <laughs> but they have a very hard time being able to back that up with their recall, with being able to say, well, I think this because in the story it said this or whatnot. So there's definitely, uh, that's where differentiation comes from a lot, is being able to dif- differentiate at the different tiers. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also, because um, kind of like I said, the Bloom's taxonomy is split up into three different uh, ways. There's um, uh, the cognitive, which is just simple knowledge. Um, there's the uh, uh, psychomotor, which is creating work on skills, like learning how to build a shelf. Um, and then there's also the, uh, what was the last one? Uh, the effective, and that is, Mostly just kind of the, uh, let's say it's the emotional based stuff. So the, the effective is kind of dealing with social situations, things like that. Um, and so even within those three, so some kids are much better at the cognitive than they are at the psychomotor, right? Some kids, you can give them a hammer and they can easily learn how to do something. They're very tactile with their learning. But other kids, if you give them a hammer, they'll stub their thumb about five times trying to hammer in a single nail. Um, and same thing with emotional. Some kids who are really great at the cognitive side of things have a struggle sometimes with the affective domain, just because, you know, those, those social, those emotional situations, they're not so apt with dealing with because they're so used to learning um, or thriving through one direction, one, one mode of this and getting themselves into either a growth mindset in one case and a fixed mindset in another. Um, So that's generally where the differentiation has to come in. Interesting. So this, so far we've been talking about working with these students and and what you've learned as an educator. Does this also apply to adults? Is adult learning comparable? Can we also use Bloom's taxonomy? Very much so. Um, the, The biggest difference I've learned in my experience with working with kids in the school, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and then working with adults in like the dance world and whatnot is when you have a, a child in a school situation, they're in a part of their life that's still very developmental. And so they're a little bit more malleable. It's easier to kind of steer them in one direction or another if they're struggling. Um, whereas when you get into adults, and especially you know the, the older and the older the adult gets, it gets they get much more set into whatever stage of you know their development that they're in. Um, and so it's still applicable. Um, you usually just have to be much more um, 
malleable to the student themselves versus the information you often give them. So for instance, if I'm working, um, let's say with dance and I'm working with someone who's in their thirties or forties, um, I'm going to have to relate much more to stuff that they're familiar with um, because that's the stuff that they're set in their mind. That's their, that's their life. That's the, their mindset. That's the way they, they will go through each of their day. And that's much more set in stone than it is, as a child who's still kind of trying to figure out uh, all those parts of their lives as they grow up. Right. So there's two, from my understanding, there's two kind of uh, sort of models about how to teach people. There's the pedagogy and andragogy, right? Where pedagogy Mm -hmm. is supposed to be oriented towards younger children who are more Mm -hmm. malleable, um, Mm -hmm. probably need a little more guidance or more dependent on their teacher. And then the andragogy or andragogical model, which assumes kind of what you're saying, like people are later in their development life, they need um, less direction, they're more interested in things being applied. Do you Mm -hmm. think those models hold for like, that one is applicable for young learners and the other is applicable for older learners? I'm not saying that it's uh, completely set in stone, um, because in the, in this case, uh, a lot of individuals are different. Um, I would say pedagogy very much applies much more to the younger kids, but there are some kids. This is one thing I learned a lot uh, in in the current job that I have, especially with the type of students that I can deal with. Some of my students um, have had to grow up a lot more. Um, than I did when I was their age. Um, when I was 15, I didn't have to worry about, um, you know, both my parents dying, have to take, having to take care, help take care of my three younger siblings uh, and whatnot like that. So in that sense, that student has had to grow up. That student is maybe not psychologically or physically, but that student in a, in a sense has had to grow up a lot more. So they might I've had to set themselves up in a different way. And so in this case, yes, a lot of, there are special cases. So kid does pedagogy only work for the younger and the, the vice versa, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a number of adults who um, are incredibly open-minded and they're just kind of always ready to learn and adjust. And, you know, we've, I, I assume you probably have worked with, with dancers before that have been like, you tell me what to do and I will figure out how to get it done. Um, and, uh, so sometimes adults can be just as malleable. It's very much a mindset thing. Um, but just simple science would suggest that, yeah, pedagogy is a little bit better for the youngers and then the antagogy is more the olders. Yeah. My experience has been that, um, at least in working with adults, I actually take more of the pedagogy approach when they're beginner because mm-hmm. I feel like they need a little more guidance. Um, like they can't be as self-directed because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when I'm working with beginners, even if they're adults, I take more of a, a, pedag- a pedagogical approach. Whereas once they've gained more experience, they kind of know more of what they want to learn or need to learn. Mm-hmm. I can treat them more in that andragogy way. Um, have you had that experience at all with like teaching adult learners? Very much. Uh, anytime you you teach someone a new skill, you're they they kind of, everybody reverts almost to this childlike uh, state in their mind when they're learning something that they don't have any experience in uh, at all. Um, some people are a little bit more, I guess, react aggressively to that. These are the people that get frustrated when they don't get it. You know, the they're thirty five years old and they can't understand how to do walk walk triple triple, and so they get frustrated and right. they stop with that. And so you know that's that's a very kind of almost childlike uh, approach to a new subject. And so, yeah, switching that, that pedagogy 
that more guided practice, that more guided instruction, you know, teaching them how to be students of this discipline uh, because, you know, I can teach English, but I'm not going to teach English the same way I'm teaching dance. I have to approach them differently because they're different skills. They're different parts of your brain. Um, and uh, if you're not used to exercising that, then yeah, there's no maturity there. There's just as much maturity and, you know, dance maturity as there is, you know, uh, psychological maturity. Right. Well, before we get into the teaching dance, because I do want to hear your thoughts on that, I'm curious mm -hmm. how you teach your students now. What are some of the methods or approaches that you use to take people through this Bloom's taxonomy? So the biggest thing that um, was emphasized in my education, my teaching education, and that I try to really incorporate into my lessons uh, is the ability for two things, really. Number one, a student focusing on their process. Um, not necessarily the final product that they are creating, uh, but what steps are they taking and evaluating their process, evaluating their steps, um, creating what uh, Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that they're, if they get to a test and they don't do so hot on a test, being like, okay, what did I do wrong in my process? Not the, oh man, I failed this test. I'm, I must be stupid now. Um, so that's number one is uh, trying to, encourage and work on that process uh, much more than necessarily emphasizing the final product itself because if you focus on the process theoretically the final pro the final product should be fairly good if the mm -hmm. process was done well um, and then number two uh, getting students to really own the work that they're doing you know students aren't going to work I don't care if you're a 13-year-old eighth grader or if you are a 47-year-old dancer or someone who's trying to learn how to fix a car, um, if you don't understand why you should be doing this or if you don't get any sort of connection to the content, you're not going to put any emphasis on it. You know, the, the excuse of uh, do it because I say so, we've all heard that growing up and we all hated it growing up. And even today we probably don't, it doesn't make sense to us. And if it does make sense to us, it's because we eventually learned why we have to learn that. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to be very upfront with, this is why I'm teaching you. Um, I open up every semester uh, talking to my students is you're not going to like everything I make you read. Right. And I don't expect you. And if a student says, I don't like to read at all. I don't like any of this stuff that I am perfectly fine with them saying that. But that doesn't give that's not a good excuse for not being able to understand the story, uh, not being able to pronounce the words, you know, not liking it isn't a good isn't the the, the point. Um, it's a issue I have sometimes with the way schools will uh, teach Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare, they'll, they'll oftentimes just teach Shakespeare and just be like, you should learn Shakespeare because it's a big part of writing history. Right. Well, that's, that's, I guess, part of it. But, you know, uh, an eighth grader isn't going to take Shakespeare, most likely isn't going to take Shakespeare for, through the rest of their life um, as much as I would love them to. Mm -hmm. um, but the we teach Shakespeare so that they can understand complex situations. We teach Shakespeare to help improve their reading diction because if you can read that meter and read that rhyme, then it makes reading other things a lot easier. Um, and so just being able to present the students like this is why this is necessary, whether regardless of whether you like it or not, this is how it's going to benefit you. And just being very upfront. And once the students understand that, they'll be more willing to work with it and they'll be able to produce much better work. Yeah. Do you find with the students you work with that you have to build that trust with them? I mean, especially because you're virtual, like they don't know you and what your plan is. Do you 
do you work actively to to build that trust and show them the why? Very much so. I do as much as I can. And uh, my live sessions are a little bit shorter than I'd like them to be. And so I don't get a lot of opportunities to really go in depth with my students. Um, but trying to create that that personal connection with a student is incredibly important. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big mantra of education that um, they'll care if they know you care. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Again, the education world has changed a lot in the last couple of decades and just the way teachers are presented or teachers are expected to present themselves for good or bad. Um, but the idea is, you know, a teacher has to be able to com- connect with a student in a way that they understand that what we do is for their betterment. Yeah. When you talk about bringing people through that process, that the process is as important as the outcome um, or that if you have a good process, it'll deliver a good outcome. What is the process? How do you develop these students' skills? You know, you talked about like argumentative writing, you know, being able to defend things or being able to understand and analyze. Um, How are you crafting lessons or approaching teaching in a way that develops skills? So a lot of it has to do with uh, what some people would call guided questioning. Um, So let's let's say we're writing a uh, an essay. I'll just kind of take you through the writing process Mm -hmm. with that. You know, first step of the writing process is brainstorming. You you come up with what you're going to write about, and you just brainstorm ideas about your topic and what you can argue or whatnot. Um, After that, you have the pre-writing stage in which you kind of organize your thoughts, you make your outlines, uh, you make your your graphic webs, whatever whatever approach you want to take. From there, you move on to your rough drafts, where you you know put your thoughts into a a cohesive paragraph, and then you have your peer editing, your reviews, and then you have your your final draft writing. So you know that right there is is the process in which I would try to in instill. So what I'm going to do with that is, uh, uh, so we're we back up to the brainstorming phase. Uh, I'm going to ask them questions. Some kids like Bloom's taxonomy, they're just going to be able to come up with a topic. It's like argumentative paper. All right, I want to do recycling. Boom. Global warming. Boom. You know, kids are going to be able to come up with that uh, off the right off the bat, and they're good to go to start pre-writing. Some kids are going to need a little bit of guidance. So those questions. This is where the questions come in. Um, so if I just say you're going to do this, that's where the kids are going to be removed from that idea of ownership. Right. right? If they are told what to do, it is no longer theirs. It is your thing that they are completing. And, mm-hmm. you know, people aren't going to react as well to that. So sometimes I might give them options, all right? Or I might give them prompts in which encourages them to brainstorm. Okay, what's something you feel very passionate about? Uh, is there an issue that you think needs to be changed? Um, does there a popular opinion that you don't agree with? You know, just using these guided questions to get them to work on that. And then, you know, they move into the pre-writing stage, again, asking questions. Okay, so you want to do global warming. What are what about global warming? How can you narrow this down? Um, versus, again, telling them, it's like, okay, you're doing global warming. How about you do wind turbines or something like that? Um, being like, okay, what do you know about global warming? How can we narrow this down? So taking more of that approach of just putting the power and the control in the student's hands allow them to actually develop their ideas. It's almost like inception, mm-hmm. right? You go in and you plant that idea and eventually it grows into their own original thought um, right. that they, that they want to create. Um, and in that point, again, if I've, if we've done every step of the process correctly, then the final product is really just the final, the finishing polish, right? Cause by the time you get 
A student shouldn't get to their final paper or their final product, their final project, whatever, and are making stuff from scratch. Right. right? If the process is done well, then all it is is just correcting a couple of spelling errors and emailing it to some friends to take a second look at. Um, and so that is where the, the process itself is emphasized. And I try and do that even in my grading, where I try and weight the, the process assignments um, a little bit more heavier than the the final product itself. So the the you know the whole or the the final is the the sum of all of its parts right. uh, to to get them to show to show them that I need to work on every single step and I need to encourage every single step and I need to put more effort in there every single step and then letting the final product be what it is. And if the final product didn't do as well as I thought, I can go back to my process and be like, oh, well my uh, my, I didn't do really any peer editing, so obviously I got a whole bunch of spelling points knocked off. And so they can go back and be like, all right, next time I need to make sure I peer edit. Yeah, and that's great because you're aligning the rewards and incentives to the outcome that you want. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you want the skill development, so you're emphasizing the development process as opposed exactly. to just the output. Um, I'm just curious, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I know in education, the few times when I've worked with educators in different capacities, there's a lot of tension of trying to do what you're talking about doing and teaching to the test. Do you struggle with that conflict at all? I do. Um, so this is, uh, I mentioned uh, Carol Dweck and the idea of growth mindset a little bit ago. Um, and to me, when I learned about this, uh, it's a wonderful book. It's called uh, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success by Carol Dweck. Um, I highly encourage you if you're interested in this. Um, but uh, a big thing that she talks about in her book is the idea that a growth mindset is a is a mindset that we put ourselves in that we can use regardless of what the final test is. Mm-hmm. So people who have a growth mindset, people who are focusing on the process that they are working on um, and the, the way they approach something um, are much more likely when they, they get to that test uh, whether they do good or whether they do bad at it, they, they take it as a chance to reflect on their process. Um, and so teaching to the test, you know, pe- people say that, and I, I don't necessarily think it's a terribly bad thing um, because I do think, you know, tests, I'm not a huge fan of standardized tests, but I do think tests and evaluations are necessary to kind of get a quick snapshot of where a student is. The fault I see is how those results are utilized. So Mm -hmm. if a, if a state stand or if a state test is being used to determine if a student moves from one grade to the next, uh, that I don't agree with, Mm -hmm. uh, because again, that's a single snapshot of a student's performance. And there's a lot of very variety variations that can go into that one product. Um, and so in that case, teaching the test can be a bad thing because you as a teacher are just trying to teach for a good result. But at the same time, I mean, teaching to the test and if I adjust that and being like, uh, I use the test so that my students are aware of what they're going to run into. Right. Because I don't want to be teaching my students one way and giving them you know, this ver- verbiage and this vocabulary and teaching this, but then when they get to the test, they're all thrown off because it's the same stuff. It's just being presented to them in a different light. Right. Um, so to me, teaching the test is not necessarily a bad thing if you are still encouraging the idea of the process 
um, with that and really just using the test in a sense of making sure that it's familiar to students when they actually get to that. Now, let's say you're just taking test questions and just quizzing them on the questions they're getting. Yeah, that's just all you're doing is you just go into the remember stage and you're not pushing their development at all. That is bad teaching to the test. Yeah, absolutely. I will also just for our listeners, um, second your recommendation of Mindset by Carol Dweck. Um, for those of you who haven't read it, it uh, she not only lays out just the general principles, she backs it up with her research. And then she also breaks it down by like, if you're a teacher, how this would apply. If you're a business executive, how it would apply. If you're a parent, how would it apply? It's really interesting. And it really influenced how I work with my own students and how I work with myself. Um, Cause I realized reading the book when she's talking about fixed mindset, I was like, Ooh, that's me. <laughs> like <laughs> I was raised with a fixed mindset until I finally tried to undo it in my early thirties. But anyway, yeah. great book. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, yeah and just kind of like to, for, for the listeners, uh, the idea the idea between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset, what Carol Dweck did um, is uh, she put together this study in which she um, took these two groups of people, basically, and the she taught them these, these different skills and everything, or her and her, her assistants taught these different skills to them. Uh, and in one group, uh, they emphasized the result, um, you know, the product and whatnot. And in the other side, they emphasized the process. Um, and so what they found, let's say group A, uh, if they got a question right, she would say something like, oh, that you got that question right, you must be so smart. Or group B, if they got the question right, she would say something along the lines of, oh, you got that right, uh, you must have worked really hard. So one emphasizes an ability and one emphasizes the process, right? The idea of, you know, and what she found is the higher, you know, the more difficult work goes, um, the people who get a growth mindset, the ones who are encouraged their process, the ones that are said, oh, you must have worked so hard, um, they're the ones who usually end up sticking with it longer, whereas the people with, who end up getting the fixed mindset, whereas if they get something wrong, now they're no longer smart because they believe, oh, right equals smart, wrong equals not smart, mm-hmm. um, that, that gets to the point where they can start to drop off, um, drop out, and... Uh, just have a harder time. Not that you can't be successful with a fixed mindset. Um, it's just not necessarily per se the ideal way to be able to move through your life. Yeah. And the part that resonated with me uh, personally was exactly what you just said. When you get a test and you're told, well, you're really smart, you got, you did well on the test. And then at a certain point you get nervous about taking the test because you're afraid of, like you said, you don't do well. Mm-hmm. then you're not smart <laughs> or people will yeah. think you're not smart and you start associating your own innate capacity with your results. And so it, make, it can create a lot of anxiety. Um, if you don't do well on a test, you can really not like yourself or feel really badly. Like you don't have that, as you were saying, reflecting on your process and how can I learn from this? It's more of, I'm just not smart. Um, and it can really shut people down. And mm-hmm. I see that happen a lot in dance too, right? Where people don't get the result they want and they just beat themselves up about it or they stop trying because they either think they don't have the capacity or that if they try and fail, that will be a reflection on who they are and what their, their self-worth is or their value is. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually let's, let's switch to dance because so much of what you've talked about so far is applicable <laughs> to our dance world. Um, Coming into West Coast Swing as an educator, um, obviously, dance is a different skill than teaching English, right? It's very kinesthetic. It's very physical. And for the most part, you're working with older learners, adult learners. Um, Mm -hmm. 
how is teaching someone to dance similar to and different from the kind of classroom learning that you've been doing? So kind of the, the first big thing, like what you just said, one is a little bit more of a, a, a mental cognitive thing where the other one is a little bit psychomotor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the mind versus the ability, because I've worked with a number of students, especially students as they get older, who understand the concept, who can tell you how to counterphrase, who can be able to comprehend everything you're giving them. But sometimes that doesn't translate to their actual physical actions. Right. Um, and so usually it's that idea of being able to bridge the gap between the cognitive and the psychomotor, um, being able to get their body to react to it, to get it to feel it. Um, and so oftentimes working with students, um, they'll be like, well, I think I'm on time. And so being able to having to break that down, go into more detail. Okay. This is why you think you're on time. And this is what's kind of actually happening. Um, in a, in a same sense, the, the teaching process itself, like how I would teach a student, just like present them information is going to be fairly similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to uh, present the information. I'm going to model it. Um, I'm going to guide them through it, and then I'm going to let them pro- try it on their own. That's kind of your your general idea. You know, you have a teacher in front of the classroom. They present you with a math problem. Um, then they uh, guide you, they do an example of it. Then they walk around, they help you do it on your own, and then you're given homework to try it out at home. Mm-hmm. Um, in dance, it's very much the same way, right? I'm going to show them this concept. I'm going to show them a whip. I'm going to show them um, counting in eights or pulsing. Um, I'm going to introduce that to them. I'm going to demonstrate it. I'm going to guide them through it and I'm going to give them a chance to practice on their own. So that process is pretty much the same. Um, It's working with that psychomotor um, and that physical aspect that sometimes uh, needs a little bit more emphasis when I, when we go into the dance world. Um, Oftentimes uh, more modeling is necessary, uh, more actually like showing them how to do it more. So kind of like not really manhandling them through a movement, but just kind of like, helping them identify, okay, you're moving with this part of your body instead of this part of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but being very specific to the the physicality of it sometimes. Now, as I said, lots of people are, are different. Some people are the same. Some people are different. Um, some people get overloaded if you give them too much information. So if I am trying to teach someone about, you know, striking and rolling the foot and about like rolling the count and rolling the foot and you have to strike with the ball, your foot as it rolls to the heel during the E and uh and whatnot. Some people are just going to get all that information. It's going to be too much. It's going to go in one year and out the other. Um, so being able to realize that and just be like, okay, let's just focus on the strike on the one and two and whatnot. Um, and so oftentimes just being able to scale that back. Uh, a little bit and realize when a student needs less information uh, in order to eventually get the big thing, because we always want, and a big thing that I've seen a number of dance teachers kind of fall into is they want that immediate result. They're almost in a fixed mindset in their teaching process uh, where I want to be able to show you what a sugar push is, walk you through it and you've got it. But when a student starts struggling and you have to change your verbiage, you have to change uh, how you present that information. That's where a lot of dance teachers who, who aren't uh, used to, you know, teaching in general, um, they don't know how to break a process down that is different from the way they learned how to do it. Because yeah. that's that's what we all fall into when we're first. Like we teach stuff based off how we learned how to do it, yeah. right? It's almost, you know, Bloom's taxonomy from the other end of the spectrum. We teach stuff as we remember it. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of, in a sense, regurgitate the information how we received it. 
then eventually we have to be like, okay, I have to look at this from a different perspective. Even if it makes no sense to me, like if I was taught this way, when I first started, I wouldn't have gotten it, but this person understands it. I need to be able to adjust to that. Um, which again, is not necessarily all that different from teaching in a classroom, but I definitely see it much more often and much more uh, necessary in uh, the dance world. Yeah. Are there any particular challenges in moving through the Bloom's taxonomy from the psychomotor perspective uh, in terms of teaching dance? So for instance, I'm thinking remembering. Well, my student may remember it in their head, but they don't remember it yet in their body, right? There can be a disconnect um, between those two. Or they may mm. understand it, but getting that leap to applying it could be really dif- difficult. Does that make sense? Or do you see any challenges in moving through Bloom's taxonomy when teaching a physical skill? Oh, very much so. Um, so in the in the psychomotor, um, the remembering is called per- the perception stage. Um, so the perception stage is the ability to use sensory cues to kind of uh, guide your motor activity. So you see something done a certain way and you remember, okay, he's stepping back on one. Right, or triple step on five and six, being able to perceive that these things are happening and logging them away. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get into the set, which is the readiness to act. That's where you kind of understand that, okay, on one, I always need to step back. Mm-hmm. Right. So in Bloom's taxonomy for the psychomotor, that, that first stage is more of the observation. Mm-hmm. Right. This person is doing these things. Then the next stage is, okay, I need to do things like this. Mm-hmm. So it's applying what I saw to my own body. Um, and that's often where there can be a little bit of a disconnect, especially with a, a brand new people who are a little bit later in life or whatnot. That often could be like they understand everything you're telling them. They, they see it, they know it, but getting the, their bodies to respond in certain ways can be a little, little bit tricky. Um, so oftentimes um, you end up spending more time dance wise in that second level, in that set um, category or uh, in the, the more general Bloom's taxonomy in the um uh, uh, the understanding level. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's much more of that getting your bo- own body to do it. Um, so oftentimes what I, what I feel like I kind of have to do and it, it can frustrate students sometimes, um, especially in a group setting is really just repetition over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you learn the, the state capitals? You just remember them over and over. Uh, you came up with a, a saying or a little song or, or something like that. And it's very similar in dance is, okay, um, being able to, you know, tap their shoulder as they're walking. So they step at the right time, you know, your foot doesn't hit the floor if I haven't tapped your shoulder uh, kind of thing. So just using, again, using those different outside approaches to interpret the information to the student's body and be, be able to kind of understand that. Right. Right. A core skill that I, um, I emphasize in my own teaching, like as a teacher, but also when I'm training other teachers is diagnosis. Because in order to do what you're saying, you have to see where the student is, right? You Mm -hmm. need to be able to assess the student at each of those levels. Are they actually remembering? Are they perceiving it? And are they able to apply it? Um, What are the skills that you think are critical to teaching, maybe more broadly, but also specifically to dance? What, What should educators be able to do? So an educator needs to be able to, I mean, as you said, diagnose, um, need to be able to see what's happening. So for one thing, um, if someone is on time, right, that is not, uh, they're not doing that wrong. 
something is something is making them be off time. Right. So no one is ever dancing thinking I'm dancing off time. Like I mean, we we you and I might have been dancing at one point, like oh man, I'm off time. Mm-hmm. But there's always a why connected to it. Why am I off time? Right? Um, am I on the upbeat instead of the downbeat? So not so much looking at kind of kind of almost taking the the process backwards, looking at the final product and be like, okay, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Right? So if they're off time, is it because they're stepping too early? Is it because they're not delaying their weight shift? Is it because they're literally hearing the music differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to create those or, or just kind of asking yourself those own questions, right? You, you realize something's happening and you'll be like, okay, why is this happening? And so you have to yourself kind of analyze, you have to put yourself in that, in that top tier of Bloom's taxonomy and be like, okay, where is the issue here? Mm-hmm. Um, because oftentimes, and th- this is the biggest mistake I've seen with with educators, both in dance and in in uh, academia, is that they just stick with what went wrong, not mm-hmm. why it went wrong. So, like if if I'm grading a paper, I'll be like, "Oh, you left off your conclusion." Well, why did they leave off their conclusion? Did they forget about it? Did they not understand what a conclusion is? Um, so on and so forth. So being able to ask yourself, you know, it's the power of why, Mm -hmm. why is this happening? And if you can't answer that, so if you have a student that is, you know, stepping on one early every single time, and if you can't answer that, then you need to be able to outsource, right? Mm -hmm. Be able to go, okay, go to a teacher, another fellow dancer and be like, Hey, I've got the student who just will not step on time on one. Um, and being able to, you know, asking for help and, um, you know, it's it's the hardest thing when you start teaching, whether it's academia or dance, um, to admit that you don't know something. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest uh, uh, insecurities to get over because you see yourself as the teacher. You're supposed to know it all. You're the authority figure in the room. Um, and saying, I don't know, is a fairly intimidating thing uh, to do. But being able to freely admit that is a huge step for a teacher um, but not just stopping there and be like, I don't know, and moving on. But being like, I don't know, let's figure this out. You know, asking people, you know, being able to ask other students in the class, being able to ask other dancers, other educators, uh, whatnot. But again, uh, just focusing in on that why. Why is this happening? And then once you know the why, then you can focus on how it can be corrected. Yeah, my two of my biggest pet peeves are things you've mentioned Uh one is people only teaching the way they were taught. <laughs> so they only have one way of saying things, um, regardless of the student or group of students. The other is, again, as you said, they may do an assessment. This is not working, but that's why I kind of use the word diagnosis. Cause to me, like a doctor diagnoses you, right? It's not just saying you're sick. It's why are you sick? What's causing it? And I feel like there are lots of teachers who will say, Oh, well, you have a stomach ache. And they don't know why. So they put a Band-Aid on your stomach. Hmm. You know, it's like, that's not going to fix the problem. And uh, I, I trained a group of teachers earlier this year, and it's hard enough doing it with one dancer, right? So I'll be like, watch this dancer or dance with this dancer and tell me what, what they're doing wrong. Um, then you have to do it with a group of people, which mm-hmm. could be anywhere from five to a hundred people, right? Um, being able to kind of look around the room and assess what's happening in mass, knowing that, to your point, 
there's going to be a whole bunch of different things going on because everybody's a different kind of student. Um, what are your approaches or tips for teachers who are trying to diagnose a whole room and figure out what's going on? So just like they need repetition in order to get something a little bit more into their brain, you as a teacher also need repetition to be able to look at a larger, a larger, you know, view of the class. Um, so if you go in almost always for almost any workshop I teach, um, my first thing I'll do is I'll have them just do a couple basic patterns, regardless of what I'm teaching. Um, if I'm teaching musicality, if I'm teaching connection, if I'm teaching footwork, kind of doesn't matter. I usually just have them do a, a phrase worth of basic patterns and I have them rotate at least once to do that. And what I'm doing is that gives me time to look around the room and be like, okay, how is this going to affect my content? Right. Um, so if I, if I'm teaching musicality and I have people who have a very hard time staying or rushing through movements and stuff like that, then I know I'm going to have to address that. Um, but I need that repetition. So yeah, it might be seem kind of pointless to do 32 counts two or three times at the very beginning of class. You need to move and get to your, you know, I want to talk about my topic. You need to know what you're working with first. Right. It's it's teaching to the class, not teaching to your own ideas, mm -hmm. right? Because I've also seen stuff where people will be like, okay, let's go through that again. They'll count five, six, seven, eight, and then they, they walk around with their head down and they're dancing their own stuff. Um, they're not paying attention to the room. Um, you need to be able to give yourself plenty of time to be able to diagnose that. Now, if you see someone who's having a particular hard time, um, but it's an issue that not everybody else is having, it's not terribly worth it to stop the entire class to try and fix that right. one issue. Now, if the person has a question about that, then yeah, you can address that. Um, but if, if you have like only a very small percentage of your class is having this one issue, you might mention it really briefly when you have the whole class's attention again, but it's not something that you want to go into much greater detail because uh, out of an entire class, you're not, most likely, depending on what you're teaching, you're not going to have a 100% complete success rate with every single student, right? You know, the, the idea is that just kind of like what I teach my students in school, they need to be able to leave my lesson with at the very least an understanding. Maybe they can't quite apply it yet, but they should be able to recall it. You know, most of the time when we're in our, if we go to, if we're teaching a workshop, let's say, at a dance event, you're mainly going to be focusing around, you know, the bottom levels of bloom, you know, the remember, the recall, um, and the, the analysis and the, the application to yourself. Right. Um, and then you're going to work on those things later. Now, if you're teaching like a progressive course in your class, then yeah, you can work your way up the hierarchy. Uh, but for the most part, you need to make sure that they understand at the very least what they're doing. So if you have those students who just aren't getting it, you have to check in and check for their understanding, right? Versus just, can you do it yet? Because some people just need to step out and do it a million times on their own, and then they'll finally kind of start to get it from that point. But giving yourself that own, your own repetition, and it also keeps people moving. You know, in a dance, you know, we're a dance, we move. And so if you have a dance class in which you're just doing all the talking and you spend more than half your class just talking to your students, you know, that, that doesn't help them create those, those psychomotor skills, right? You need to have them constantly doing something. You can vary it up a little bit. Instead of having them do a sugar push every time, you're like, okay, now do a whip and try and do the same concept. Um, but they, they need to be moving both for their sake 
and your sake to be able to get as much data from that group as possible. Yeah, I uh, I ask my students a lot of questions, which I feel like in America, at least, that's not what we expect in education. <laughs> like, <laughs> for better or worse, the way a lot of teachers teach is they talk to you, you take notes, you spit it back out in a test. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think in recent years, collaborative learning or active learning has been more prevalent um, yep. from my experience. But anyway, that's kind of, I think, the traditional expectation. And so, and I think that's still true in a lot of dance classes where somebody just tells you what to do and you do it, especially mm-hmm. like big group classes. Um, so I ask a lot of questions. And every time I go into a new place or a new community and I ask questions, it's like crickets, right? right. <laughs> um, nobody thinks that I really want an answer. So, um, but I do it for two reasons. And I tell people this kind of to your point, I want them to understand why I'm asking questions. One is I want them to actually process the information and spit it back out, whether that's to recall the information or to think about it and like process it and analyze it and what it really means. But the other is, so I give feedback about what they actually understand, because mm-hmm. if I don't hear from them, if I'm just watching, I'm only getting one form of feedback, right? Like I can watch people and see what's going on, but I don't know if that problem is a physical one, if it's a mental one. And if it is like psychological, is it because they don't understand the concept? Is it because they do, but they're not understanding it correctly, right? Like mm-hmm. I feel like asking questions is really low hanging fruit for engaging students and also getting the information back that you need in order to Mm -hmm. diagnose and see what's really going on. And one thing that people need to understand is, even though technically the brain isn't a muscle, um, it works. Thought, A thought process is indeed a muscle in a sense that it needs to be warmed up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the first time I usually start out is I usually do some very simple questions that are non-threatening for students to respond to. You know, it may sound dumb, but like asking, how's everybody doing? Um, Rebecca Ludwig, my my former partner, um, and I would start off our class literally having everybody tell us their names. Like we would quickly, like even if we have a workshop of like 100 people, we would quickly run around and get everybody's name. Um, But, you know, just doing stuff to get them talking, you're literally warming up and making them comfortable with the idea of saying something in that setting. Um, Whereas if you just go straight in and be like, all right, do these patterns, watch us do it, now do it. You know, people, there's going to be some people who will jump right in and they'll be fine with that. Again, it's a different thought process. Uh, But then there's going to be a number of people who I would say probably are, you're more so, um, more times than not, people who are going to be a little bit kind of, you know, feel a little bit small in a situation like that. And you don't want that. You want them to feel very comfortable. And so just getting to talk to you. I do the same thing in private lessons. If I have a brand new student, um, I talk to them for the first little bit. I'm like, tell me about yourself. And I don't want you. You want them to have this feeling that conversation is natural in this setting, which is something that was really weird when the first time I went over and I taught in Russia uh, in 2015, because they don't say anything <laughs> right. during lessons. Like it's, it's almost considered impolite to talk or ask questions during a lesson. Um, and so that was a very, di- that was a, that was a weird kind of shift in, in my dancing approach I had to take. Uh, but in general, you know, if, if you want a certain vibe in your, if you want people to be able to ask questions, then you have to start out with them talking. They need to be able to find that this is a safe place in order to voice. Yes. And it's funny you mentioned that because Years ago, I did a training on participatory facilitation or group facilitation, mm-hmm. but it was with the Institute of Cultural Affairs and they emphasize 
the participatory nature, right? That we want everybody to feel like they can speak up. And one of the, the techniques that they use is to do exactly what you and Rebecca did, which is right off the bat, go around the room and have everybody say something right at the very top of the meeting. Because once people speak, they're much more inclined to speak again. Mm-hmm. And it tends to level the playing field. You know, you might have somebody who just dominates the conversation. But if everybody speaks, it's kind of a great equalizer. Like everybody spoke. Everybody has said something at least once. So the door has been opened. So I really like that idea of going around um, and asking, you know, even just what your name is or asking some question to the question. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that I do. And sometimes it's, it's not even that you have to get them to say something to you. You just have to get them to say something in the setting. For instance, when I'm working in my school, um, usually the very first activity I do for every single class is I have them do some sort of writing, the answer question, they respond to a quote, um, but they don't respond to me. They respond to someone else in the class. Like I'll be like message the person below you on the list or message the message a person who has a different letter in their first name than yours. Um, but like getting them just to interact with the group as in itself, because, you know, believe it or not, for that next hour that you're in that dance room, that you're in that workshop room, um, you're all in that together. And so you have to communicate with the people in that room just as much as you have to communicate to the teacher, um, which also helps with the idea of, you know, uh, oftentimes followers have that stigma of uh, speaking up to their leader, in a, especially in a workshop scenario, when they feel like something's not right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of might help uh, help a little bit with be like, hey, that kind of felt like this. You know, obviously you want to encourage the correct way to share information. Right. Um, but just being, it's just as important for them to be comfortable talking to each other as it is them asking questions to you. Yeah, agreed. Uh, by the way, coming into this community as a professional educator, what was your perception of sort of the state of teaching and learning in our dance community? Where do you think uh, it is now? <laughs> um, so I've seen a couple of different phases. So I started uh, Dancing West Coast Swain more or less in about 2006, 2007 mm-hmm. um, time period. Um, and, uh, you know, when I first learned... And I didn't travel a ton in my first couple of years, so this might have just been, you know, a regional thing or whatnot. Um, but you know, I, I definitely kind of felt like there was a little bit more emphasis on the pattern, and you know, a little bit more of the just the overall structure. Not to say that's a bad thing, right? No, nothing I'm really kind of talking about here is is bad or or good exclusively. Um, but that that was very much just kind of how the dance was taught. It was very you know pattern oriented. It was very very if you came up with moves, you know, this is the move that fits in this pattern. And whatnot, and that's where a lot of the creativity was was developing those patterns. Um, then, as I started to dance, and there, there, we got the the European influence came in, and a lot of other um, influences from other regions and dances came in. Um, people started to go, in my opinion, a little too towards the connection idea, that, and they they became very theoretical. Or everybody at least wanted to be theoretical in the way they taught the dance. Everybody wanted to be kind of like this. Uh, it's almost like uh, the sensei, sensei type, <laughs> right. sage guru approach to their their dance. They wanted their theories to be understood and widely known. And to me, in a sense, that kind of went. You know, that swung the pendulum to the other side of the direction. Where it's okay. There's people have got all these theories in their head, but 
they're not doing the dance itself terribly well. Um, and I feel like there's a little bit of a, you know, the, the teaching kind of swings back and forth um, in that I don't think it's it's nearly as pattern oriented as it used to be. It's not nearly as theoretical as it used to be. I kind of feel like at this moment, people have kind of found a at least a, a somewhat good balance between the two that we understand that there's a time for patterns and there's a time for theory. Um, uh, but that, that was kind of the, the big thing for me. And not that it's bad to be, again, not that it's bad to be pattern oriented, not that it's bad to be uh, theory oriented. Um, both both things you can see at the top echelon, people teaching both sides. Um, it's when, again, like we talked about earlier, when you're just teaching it in the one way that you learned it. Like if you're just spouting theory from what you heard from Royston or what you heard from Benji uh, or what you heard from you know, Brandy, you know, if, you, if you're just spouting that theory um, and then someone has a question that challenges that and you can't respond to that, then that's, that's where the issue is. And I think that's, you know, whether it's, that's always been present, whether we, we talked about a pattern-oriented society or a theory-oriented society, um, that's always been the issue. Especially, especially in the the introductory teachers or the, the the teachers that come up through the ranks. Yeah, and I think, like you said, it's it's because this dance is an applied skill, right? Like, I mean, it's kinesthetic, and we're doing something. The theory is great because it gets to understanding and provides like a conceptual framework for people to mm-hmm. understand. But without the practice and application, um, people aren't going to get that learning. Uh, it's yeah. not going to stick with them. They're not going to be able to actually use it. Um, and I think, you know, we all know teachers who, who skew more towards one or the other, where mm-hmm. they kind of lecture at you for an hour or you're only doing patterns and you, you don't walk away being able to do anything with that pattern. Right. Mm-hmm. It's about finding that balance of why are we doing this and what can I do with it? Like, how do yeah. I apply this to my dance? Now, on that caveat, even when I talked about how when I kind of first started, the emphasis was a little bit more pattern-oriented, um, the, the people at the top echelons, the top educators, will still do it. We're still teaching that in a correct sense. Mm-hmm. It's not that people like uh, – because when I first started dancing, you know, you had Jordan and Todd. Um, I mean, they're, they're still around. But, yeah, Jordan Todd, uh, Robert, uh, you know, Kyle all these people Sarah. that are still around, Kyle, Kyle and Sarah – and even though the dance was a little bit more towards the side of the spectrum, they were still teaching that stuff correctly, yeah. right? There, there was the understanding that if I'm doing this move or I'm teaching this pattern, they need to understand these things. They have to scaffold that information first. Right. So I have to say, again, that, that one is better than the other because you can teach theory and teach it poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing, just as much as you can teach a, a pattern poorly. Yeah. What would you like to see more teachers doing in our dance community to improve the quality of education? Ah, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, one thing um, that I learned very much, one of the first big lessons I learned in my educational experience is that um, you have to treat yourself like a student still. You have to have a student mentality as you're teaching in the sense that you have to realize that again, there's a lot of stuff you don't know. Your word is not God. Um, and you have to be willing to, um, again, like I said earlier, say you don't know, um, and work to remedy the fact that you don't know that, or that you can't respond to that. Mm -hmm. Um, teaching dance is a fairly intimidating thing, especially, you know, this, this is a, 
it's interesting to me because I went to school for four years to be an educator and I've been working on before that I, I spent my whole high school, high school uh, experience doing stuff like summer camps and whatnot to hone my, my teaching skills. And so I put in at least eight years before I even stepped into and took over a classroom. Um, whereas dance teachers, you know, and I feel like there's a lot of pressure on dancers that once you get to those advanced all-star ranks, it kind of seems like you feel like you should be teaching, Mm -hmm. which if you like teaching, then teach. If you don't like teaching, you have to understand that teaching is a skill then that you have to develop, Right. right? Just like learning how to, you know, do math, learning how to, you know, read a book, learning how to dance in general, right? Being a good dancer and being a two teacher are not necessarily synonymous with each other. Being good at one doesn't make you the other. And so just kind of being able to understand that and putting yourself in that student mentality when you first start teaching. Um, And don't just go, don't just dive into it, right? If you have an opportunity to be a teacher, prep yourself for it Um, because you're, you're much more able to um, give yourself that growth mindset because if you just go in and you just start teaching, you know, it's, it's kind of a Russian roulette at that point is whether or not you, you, you get it or you don't and whether or not your students succeed. Yeah. I think that's my, my biggest wish is that if people are interested in teaching that they develop their own skills. I mean, like you said, you had eight years of, of, working on your teaching skills before you stepped into a classroom. And, you know, I think we in the dance community, not that we don't have good teachers, we obviously do. um, But there are a lot of people who, like you said, some kind of get forced in. Sometimes they're not even advanced all-star. Sometimes they're just a really good novice and they're the best one in their community and people Mm -hmm. seek them out for advice. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. You know, they have something to offer. But we think that, oh, I've been dancing for a year and I'm better than my peers. I can teach, whereas there are people who get, forget a bachelor's, they get a master's, they get a PhD in education. Like there's a whole field of study around how people learn and how to help them learn um, that we, I don't think, uh, seek out enough, that we don't benefit from. You know, even you here sitting and I'm hoping people listening here and you talk about like Bloom's taxonomy or listening and hearing about mindset, like that people seek out this information that is available if you are taking that student mindset and saying, I have something to learn here from people who have done this before, mm-hmm. even if it's in other capacities. I mean, yes, we can learn from dance teachers and certainly a lot of people have learned from people like Jordan Tatiana or Kyle and Sarah or Robert, people who do teacher trainings to mm-hmm. impart what they've learned um, from their experience. But I do wish more people who are interested in teaching and are interested in helping other people learn. I think it's a great thing. Um, took a little more time to have that student mindset and teach themselves about how to teach. Yeah. Um, and that is one thing, like you just mentioned that there are some teachers, some teachers out there who do some really great uh, teaching courses um, and teaching workshops and what that. And I, I do feel like, and this is, this might be me as a, as an educator, be a little bit biased, but I do think that that is a, a fairly um, that that's kind of a hole that we have in our societies. We don't have a lot of not necessarily standardized, but we don't have just um, processes out there for people to learn how to teach. Um, the process is very trial and error uh, for the vast majority of dancers in our community. Where they might be at a they might be at an event where Robert is teaching one of his teaching seminars or whatnot. Um, 
But in general, there's there's not a whole lot of opportunities, I feel like, for our teachers to get out there or our dancers to get out there and, and literally learn how to be teachers. I mean, we have a couple of different judging things, uh, some judging certifications and whatnot, and all that's great. But you don't hear about teaching certifications. Right. And honestly, that's the uh, that's kind of the – I feel like the – the, one of the things that can really hold the community back is if you aren't giving your teachers good, number one, good information, mm-hmm. um, because a good teacher with teaching bad information can be more dangerous than a bad teacher teaching good information. Um, but, you know, that they're getting the correct information and then just literally how the after, how do you control a room? How do you work with a private lesson? Um, I've done that. I did that before when I was uh, growing up. So I actually took private lessons on how to give a private lesson Mm -hmm. or private lessons on how to teach a group class. Like just being able to recognize and analyze and understand that that's, it's a constant growth course. Like you're, you're never going to be done with being a good teacher. Like there's, there's no top point teacher, just like there's no top point dancer. You always have to keep, there's always more to learn. There's always more that you can do to improve. Yes. I feel like every year, I reflect on how my own teaching continues to grow, or at least I try to, but I always feel like I need to apologize to my students of the past, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I look back on, I don't know, my students five years ago, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that like I did it that way or that I taught you that information, right? In part because the dance is always changing, but also in working with different students all the time, I feel like I have to keep adapting my teaching. Um, oh, yeah. I, I don't have a background in education. And I've had to seek out that information as best I can. Um, and I'm even learning things from you in this conversation, which is great. Um, but yeah, I just feel like I owe my students an apology every year. <laughs> well, and there, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And that's even goes along with it. Just like I said, there's uh, no shame in saying you don't know something. There's also no shame in saying that you were wrong about mm-hmm. something. Like I, I do that to my students all the time. I'd be like, man, if I'd have known the stuff that I knew when I was teaching you five years ago, man, you'd be way further along. Right. Um, but we have to admit that that's a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be, we're human. Humans are constantly growing. Humans are constantly changing. And it's a great disservice to us if we treat ourselves as this amazing entity that's not wrong. And, you know, we're we're not allowing ourselves to grow. And that's also another thing. You have to be open to feedback. Mm -hmm. Like if if you are so closed off or if you're intimidated or if you don't like it being told that what you did wasn't the best way, then you're not going to make a great teacher um, because a great teacher has to constantly adapt what they're doing. Times change, students change, information changes. You know, we learn new things. We learn more efficient ways to do things. Not that you taught us something wrong before, but maybe that wasn't the most efficient way to teach it. Maybe that wasn't the most efficient way to do that. That's, that's why this dance keeps changing. This dance keeps changing, not because we think that things are wrong, that we used to do is that we find more efficient and more applicable ways uh, to do them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about the teaching side, but a lot of our listeners aren't teachers, but they are students of the dance. What are some of the pitfalls or mistakes that you see students making? And what advice would you give to people to be better students? So (laughs) this is what I I was, I was prepared for this question. Um, I have this saying, and sometimes you have to let it mull over your brain a couple times before you really get it. Um, but this is the saying that I use. Um, 
this time isn't the one that matters. It's the next time. And basically what I say with this um, is if you go to an event, say you enter a Jack and Jill, and this is where we get into a fixed mindset scenario, that if you go into a Jack and Jill and you do really bad in that Jack and Jill, you play, you don't even final. If you set your, you know, if you put all your chips down on that one single event, then you're not going to last long in this dance, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, the fixed mindset is the sense that when you run into failure, you start to blame all the outside variables. Mm-hmm. And we've all been to events where, you know, someone doesn't final and they'll be like, oh, the judges are biased against me. Or, oh, my partners weren't all that great. Or, you know, you, you can listen to them, just list off all of these reasons that have nothing to do with person number one with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so it's because they put so much emphasis on that one event. Right. And I'm here to tell all the listeners right now, there's a lot of West Coast Swing events out there right now. A lot. Guess what? No matter where you live, probably next month, there's another event that you can go to. Or even the next week. You know, So it's never that one event that you go to. It's always You're always getting ready for the next one. So if I don't do so hot at this event, I'll remember, again, my process. I'll remember the variables that I can control for the next event, right? Even if we're talking about the U.S. Open, you know, the most prestigious event that we have in our dance community, right? If you don't do well at the U.S. Open, guess what? In 12 months, there's another U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. You know, dance is a constant learning process. And, you know, we've all done it before. We've all fallen into that mindset of, you know, I can't keep spending my money like this, or I can't, um, I've been working for so long and I'm not seeing those results and whatnot. Um, once you start to get into that, you have to reanalyze and be like, okay, if I'm not happy with the situation, what do I need to change about myself to do that? But getting yourself locked in that the product, the final placement is your worth. That's when you're going to start falling along the wayside you know people complain about like the world sweetness council point system and everything about how it creates you know people who are just point grabbers and whatnot you know to me that's not a problem with the system to me that's a problem with the user Um, and we need to encourage the mentality that even if you're not you don't have the points you want if you don't have the placements you're getting if you're not getting those things you get that growth mindset where you can look at the process and be like okay what do i need to change for next time, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, we, we have those students who are like, oh, I didn't do so hot at this event. I'm like, okay, have you practiced since your last lesson with me? Well, no. Like, did, did you work on your connection? Did you work on your timing? And they're like, no. It's like, well, then how did you expect this to be any different? Right. Um, and so that's what I really want to put out there to, to all the, the dancers out there is understand that you are involved in a process and you're actually never going to reach the end. There, there is no end Mm-hmm. to this until you just completely stop dancing i mean that, that i would consider that to be an end or you die whatever right. um but if you want to stay with dance then you are in a perpetual you're in a mobius strip of a, a process yeah. and you have to be able to pick yourself up analyze and move on yeah the other thing that i like about what you said that i often think about is that the only thing that's in your control is you Right. So competition, like when I work with students and inevitably my students will have some competition goal and I try to steer them away from that because 
so many things in the competition results are out of your hands, right? Judges, mm-hmm. partner, who else is there that day? What the judges are looking for that day, what they see in that moment. It's out of your hands. But you, again, it's that focus on process. You can control the process. You can control what you work on. You can evaluate what of the things you worked on went well and what didn't and what to improve for next time. Um, I don't know what a judge is going to see of my dancing. I don't know what they're going to think of it, but I know what I am putting out there. I know what I think of it and I can keep working on that. And I try to put that emphasis, not just for goal setting, but also how they are as a student in a class. I think it's really easy for a lot of students. This is one of my pet peeves of students is that they start focusing on their partner and what their partner's mm-hmm. doing wrong, or they start telling their partner what to do. And I'm like, hi, I'm the teacher. I was paid to help you. Um, mm-hmm. So let me help you. Like if there's something going wrong, let me know. But I tell students to kind of focus on themselves and their own bodies, their own understanding, their own application of what I'm asking them to do. Um, you know, yes, I want you to be mindful of your partner. I don't want you to ignore your partner, but take ownership of your own learning process and what that what that's doing for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, a, a better way to get longer term results. I agree. And also even in, in the moment, like if we talk about as you get to like stuff like spotlights and routines, um, there is nothing that your other pair competitors can do to affect your dance. If you, if you don't let it. So people talk about like, you know, if, if you people hate going after like Gary and Susan in classic or following Benji in showcase um, or whatnot, um, people talk, yeah, that's, that's very intimidating to go after those people. And I can tell you, I have got, I went after Jordan and Tot after they did their retirement performance at the U S <laughs> open. So I know what is possibly one of the most intimidating draws to have. <laughs> right. Um, but my partner and I went out and we actually placed the highest at the U S open that we had ever placed. Um, and that, that wouldn't have happened if you let that get to it. Jordan Todd's performance does not affect my performance. Like it's not like basketball where they can run up and knock the ball out of my hand. Right. They leave their stuff off the floor. They leave the floor. Robert will do a good job of coming in and resetting the crowd or whoever the MC is. And then you go out and you do your product, Right. If you let somebody, the person who went before you, affect you, then, yeah, you're going to have a bad run. Yeah, And that, that's one of the more certain things that I can tell you, that if you let that affect you, it's all about you letting it affect you. Right. Like you said, it's the mental game, the mindset that people have going into this dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time. But uh, I went longer than I planned because I just really enjoyed talking to you about all of this. So thank you so much for for taking the time. Um, and now that I live in the Midwest, hopefully I'll run into you somewhere oh, that'd be great. at some event soon. Um, we'll nerd out about all this. Yeah, absolutely. We should definitely get a drink sometime. And hopefully I'll have you back on the show to chat more. That'd be great. Excellent. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Where to start? There was so much in this conversation that I loved and that resonated with me personally. Hearing about Bloom's taxonomy and how there's different pathways for cognitive, physical, and affective skills was super fascinating and a really great framework for thinking about how to develop students of any discipline, and even how to develop ourselves. If we understand what the steps are in the process, we can make sure that we get those different pieces. It also helps us to understand better 
where differences in our learning abilities lie. So like Chris was talking about, some people may be really good at the remembering stage, whereas others are really good at the analyzing stage. I think the better we understand how students move through that process, the better we can be as teachers as well as students. It was really cool to hear him talk about how he brings his students through that taxonomy, how he uses guided questions to teach his students, to get them to own the process and to understand the process, and then how he applies similar techniques to dance students. I think there are two big takeaways for me from this conversation. First, a focus on process and mindset. Like Chris said, if the process is good, the outcome should be good too. And a big part of getting the process right is how we set our minds to the task. A growth mindset keeps us open and learning, whereas a fixed mindset shuts us down when we fail, makes us shift blame to things we can't control, and it lessens our chances of success. How we approach our work and how our teachers guide us through that work in a way that encourages us to own the process and embrace the ups and downs determines so much of the outcome. The other big takeaway here is that people who teach or want to teach really need to educate themselves. We as teachers cannot be effective or successful in developing the skills and abilities of others if we do not develop the skills and abilities of ourselves. As Chris illustrated, there are theories and practices that have been developed based on years of research and study to help people learn. If we want to serve our students well, we need to be the best instruments of instruction and education that we can. Sure, you may happen to learn these skills through experience and practice, but the more we can seek out this information and educate ourselves, the quicker we can become more effective. I often talk about the difference between teachers and talkers. Teachers are invested in the development of others, in responding to the needs of others, in serving the interests of others. Whereas talkers just like to talk. It's about them and what they get from standing in front of people and telling them what they know or what to do. A real teacher will build their own toolkit so they can listen and adapt and respond and find the best way to help that student or that group of students. Teaching skills range from diagnosis, as we talked about, and instruction, to lesson planning and classroom management, to communication and even oratory and presentation. Talkers don't care if they can get the student to do something different. Teachers will make the investment in their own development so they can be a positive instrument of change in others. And while I put the emphasis on teachers here, I also believe that students need to take ownership of their learning and be proactive in that process. If you don't understand why you're doing something, ask questions. Take notes. Find teachers who resonate with you. Educate yourself on how to learn, how to study, how to practice. Surround yourself with others who are investing in learning when you can. Whether you're a teacher or a student, there are lots of ways of educating yourself. Take an online course. Read articles online. Read books on the subject. Chris mentioned Bloom's Taxonomy, and I'll put a link in the footnotes for more information on that. We talked about Carol Dweck's mindset, and I'll share a link to that book too. I was also personally really influenced by a few others. Uh, A Mind for Numbers by Barbara Oakley. She talks about how to learn math and science, but it's really about the process of how to learn and study any subject. 
I also really enjoyed The Inner Game of Tennis by W. Timothy Galway about how to master the mental or psychological side of learning. And I really liked Switch by Chip and Dan Heath about behavior change, both in individuals and in organizations. There are others that I could rattle on about, but those are at the top of the list. I'll put those links in the footnotes as well. But what did you think of my conversation with Chris? What stood out to you or surprised you? What did you find most enlightening and what was most helpful? What might you do differently after listening to this episode, whether you're a teacher or a student? What do you think of the state of teaching in our community? And how can we improve both teaching and learning among West Coast Swing Dancers? Share your thoughts with me and your fellow listeners. You can post a comment on the website, you can respond to our posts on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. I post a question there every week just to keep conversation going. You can also email me at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news, don't forget you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at thenakedtruthwcs, and yep, I still, every week, post on Twitter at NakedTruthWCS. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and give us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric. I'm Chris. And that's That's the the Naked Naked Truth. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric. And I'm Chris. And that's the, the naked truth. The naked truth. Here, you say, and that's Can I redo the that? Truth, and I'll just. <laughs>